The reading this morning is from the first chapter of Luke, starting at verse 39. Mary visits Elizabeth. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Let's just pray. Father, as we listen again to Mary's song today, help us with her to rejoice anew in God our Savior. Amen. Well, I'd like to say a lot in thanks to all those expressions of affection on this significant day for me. Um, There isn't time for me to do so now. I'll just say one thing, which was um, recalling that day, which was um, we had to go from the ordination service at St. Albans in the morning to the parish where I was um, going to serve, and in the evening we had the carols by candlelight. And I was due to preach. Well, you're not going to get that sermon again, don't worry. But uh, just as an indication of how far things have moved on, there was no such thing as overhead projectors in those days, and I had this wonderful visual aid. (laughs) I don't suppose anybody in the church, particularly in candlelight, could begin to read what it said. It had its message, but uh, I'm afraid we'll just leave that aside and attend to the the message for today. We began that reading when it said, um, Mary set out and went with haste. But it wasn't what you and I know as the pre-Christmas rush. Last-minute shopping, present wrapping, tree decorating, 
breathless carol singing and traffic jams as everyone tries to get somewhere else. No, of course, that's all our modern celebration of Christmas, but, but why does it say that Mary was in such a hurry? Well, when the angelic messenger came to her with the news that she'd been chosen by God to bear the Savior, she was left in a difficult situation, to say the least. How were people going to believe her story? Here was an unmarried girl, pregnant. How were the parents going to react? Most of all, how could Joseph, her fiancé, possibly understand? Well, in God's mercy, in that message from Gabriel, he gave her one thing to cling on to. He said, your cousin Elizabeth in her old age, a woman who had given up expecting a child, has become pregnant and is now six months into her pregnancy. Well, you can imagine what that meant to Mary in that situation. It was an assurance that God could do wonderful things. It was an invitation for her to put her faith totally in what God was doing and that he would look after her in the way things would turn out. And so it's natural, isn't it, that Mary wanted to go and meet Elizabeth at the very earliest opportunity and to share with her the excitement of what, what God was doing in their lives. And when she arrived at Elizabeth's home, the unborn baby, we read, who was going to be John the Baptist, um, kicked strongly in Elizabeth's womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And these two women were caught up in an ecstatic moment of rejoicing together. Elizabeth said, Blessed is he, she, blessed is she, who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. And Mary responded with this wonderful song, which we know as the Magnificat, from the opening word of the text in Latin. A song which has been sung and said in our worship in many lands and many languages down the ages. My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And this is a very remarkable song. Let me just mention two features which stand out for me. First, it's clearly a song of faith, because Mary praised God even though everything she was singing about had yet to happen. The Savior had not yet been born. She had no idea what would happen to her when the scandal of her pregnancy became public knowledge. And the blessings she refers to in this song must have been very difficult to imagine in the harsh and cruel world in which she lived. And yet she believed what the Lord had said to her. In fact, she spoke as though God's great deliverance had already taken place. And that makes it a truly remarkable statement of faith. But the second thing that strikes me about this is that it's not really a song about herself. Apart from the opening words of rejoicing, it goes on to relate how the mercies which she have, has received extend to all those who fear him from generation to generation. When the angel came to her, 
her response was, I am the Lord's servant. And she never thinks of herself as anything other than the channel of God's love and mercy to all people. Her mind isn't set on herself, though it might well have been in those circumstances, but it's set on the vast scope of God's plan of salvation for the whole world. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm, she says. He has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things. And he has remembered his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever. And Mary's song thus links what is happening in her womb and her life with the ancient promise of God to Abraham in the scriptures that through his descendants all peoples of the earth would be blessed. The whole plan of our salvation is wrapped up in this one gift, God himself entrusted to Mary. So there's two very remarkable things about this song, but then I think we we must notice a third thing. It's not just a song of mercy and salvation. It's also a song of judgment. And the judgment here falls on three groups of people, the proud, the powerful, and the rich. It's my purpose this morning to look at what this judgment means for us, lest we miss the hidden, humble thing that God did in Mary in the night in an obscure cattle shed. First it says God has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts, or the authorized version translation, in the imagination of their hearts. Now that touches all of us. Pride is said to be the root of all sin. It's the cloak of respectability and self-righteousness with which we cover the secret inner self-knowledge which may condemn us. The poet R.S. Thomas wrote a wonderful satire about a young preacher who went to be pastor of a chapel in the remote Welsh hills where the farmers wore Sunday suits and enjoyed a good hellfire sermon promising damnation on all sinners. But this preacher made a big mistake. He got personal and particular. He tackled individuals about their own sins. One farmer took him aside and said, take a word from me and keep your nose in the black book so it won't be tempted to go sniffing where it's not wanted and leave us farmers to look to our own business in case the milk goes sour from your sharp talk before it's churned to good butter, if you see what I mean. And so this young pastor moderated his message, and as a result, he became a man ordained forever to pick his way along the grass-strewn wall, dividing tact from truth. I knew it all and pretended I didn't. They knew what that I knew, and pretended I didn't. They listened to me preaching the unique gospel of love, but our eyes never met. And outside, the blood of God darkened the evening sky. You see, the proud are not just those who put on airs and think they're better than others. It extends beyond the narcissistic concerns of our fashion-conscious, status-seeking consumer society. It's not just about those who are obsessed at Christmas with possessing the latest gadget 
standing out in the crowd, being seen at the fashionable places and with the smartest people, or having the best table in the restaurant. God scatters or confounds those who are proud in their inmost thoughts, in the imagination of their hearts. In the birth of Jesus, God laid aside every shred of dignity, every claim to special treatment. Before the humility of Christ, we can make no pretense. The proud not only think they are better than others, they include those who think they are better than they themselves really are. We never know the salvation which Christ brings until we've acknowledged the true state of our inmost being under the searching God judgment of his own self-denying humility. Secondly, God's brought down the mighty from their thrones. Well, in my lifetime, I've seen many tyrants toppled. Hitler and his Nazi henchmen, the dictators of the communist states in Eastern Europe, Idi Amin in Uganda, Saddam Hussein in Iraq, Colonel Gaddafi in Libya. On each occasion for a fleeting moment, the world seems a safer place. But other tyrants soon arise. Who's going to grab power in Egypt just now? And for what purpose? History reveals the sad fact that few individuals have been able to exercise real power without being corrupted in one way or another. But this message again isn't just about those who strut on the world stage. It doesn't need a very large scale throne to have a corrosive effect on its occupant. It may be no more than a managing director's chair, a head teacher's study, or a driver's seat on a local bus to fling your weight about. There are petty tyrants aplenty to be found among the great army of grandmothers. And I know there are <laughs> many grandmothers here this morning. And even those with disabilities can wield an oppressive power over those who look after them. Equally, those given power over others often exercise it in a self-serving and humiliating way. The terrible goings-on in some of our care homes recently have revealed a dark side to our supposedly caring society. What are we doing with the power which you and I exercise? In Mary's song, we find God's contrary word to all our abuse of power. She was given a helpless infant. And for me, the most moving pictures of the birth at Bethlehem are those which expose the fragility and vulnerability of the incarnate Son of God. We're all tested by our reaction to this inconspicuous event in the lives of a couple who had so little influence they couldn't even get a place to stay in Bethlehem. Power, as we understand it, simply has no place in God's work of our salvation. The wise men made a big mistake when they assumed the Savior would be found in a king's palace. And yet we go on putting our trust in rulers with feet of clay. And each one of us possesses power or influence over someone else. Let us pray that whatever power over others is put into our hands, we may always use it according to the just and gentle rule of the Son of God. 
And so the Magnificat speaks of God's judgment on the proud and the powerful, and thirdly, on the rich. God has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. Over the past few years, we've woken up to the fact that the trickle-down theory of wealth creation through the capitalist system isn't really working. We've watched while those who control the money bags have run off with the lion's share. We're witnessing a rip-off in which the gap between rich and poor is getting ever wider. Sadly, the greed in the human heart is such that money-making creates an insatiable desire for more. At Christmas, we receive a number of newsletters telling us what our friends are up to. I expect you do too. And this year, we had one which told us about a charity this particular couple was setting up to help the poor in Sierra Leone. The letter described Sierra Leone, I quote, the poorest, most underdeveloped country in the world. Now, I happen to know that last year, the con that country's economy grew by 32% way above China, astronomically above the UK, possibly the fastest growing economy in the world. The land is rich in diamonds and other minerals. And yet that doesn't mean the newsletter had got it wrong. Hardly any of that wealth reaches the people who live there, except for the privileged few. And to what end are they heaping up these riches? A recent television program you may have seen interviewed the doorman at the richest address in New York, an apartment block housing several billionaires. And the doorman spoke of the unpleasantness of the residents, their meanness, their absorption with making money as an end in itself. Now, of course, there are some rich people, thank God, who give away vast sums, for example, through the Bill Gates Foundation. But the point I'm making is that in itself, money has no life-enhancing value. The test is what we do with it, and that will be determined by what we hold dear. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If a rich person has no worthwhile values dear to his or her heart, apart from the value of their investments, monetary wealth will only be an empty shell, a husk, offering no nourishment, and the rich will go away empty into the dark of their worthless lives. The young Napoleon Bonaparte wrote to his brother, there's only one thing to do in this world, and that is to keep acquiring money and more money, power and more power. All the rest is meaningless. Well, by contrast, we find at Bethlehem God's reversal of all those human values. The entry into the world of the Son of God took place with no parade or pomp, but in poverty and obscurity, with no display of power, but in the weakness and vulnerability of a helpless infant, without the best attention that money could buy, but attended by the joy of the angels and the love of those who received God's pure gift. Truly, he's lifted up the humble. And if we want to worship at the manger this Christmas, we too must lay aside our pride and pretense about ourselves 
choosing the way of love over command and power, and realizing that our lives are empty indeed unless God fills us with the riches which came in the birth of Jesus. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty you and I might become rich. Thanks be to God. Amen.